It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I thought you might be interested in knowing that the Los Angeles Times has created a new beat, a new beat and a new Instagram account, and it's devoted to Kamala Harris. And here is how the paper describes this. Kamala Harris, the first vice president who is black, South Asian, female, and the direct descendants of immigrants. Introducing Covering Kamala Harris, a beat dedicated to her historic rise to the White House, all aspects of her career, her political significance, her sometimes shifting political stances, and her effort to build a foreign policy resume. Uh, she's all kinds of firsts. The first woman, first woman of color, black woman, mixed race woman, South Asian, elected to national office. And then, of course, there are her California roots. Now, obviously, uh, former senator from California would be of great interest to the L.A. Times. But doesn't this look like it's just a tribute, almost like a monument, almost like a museum about how great Kamala Harris is? Can you imagine any major American newspaper uh, devoting a beat and launching it in just that way uh, to a Republican vice president with such glowing terms. Uh, conservative commentator Greg Price uh, didn't take kindly to this. He said, journalists in North Korea are going to be executed when Kim Jong-un becomes jealous of the glowing coverage the American media have given to Biden and Harris in the last week. Uh, now, it is certainly not unusual for newspapers to have uh, people uh, who are largely devoted to a first lady, first gentleman maybe, second gentleman I should say, or uh, the vice president. But uh, And, you know, we'll have to see how the LA Times does. But, wow, it just seemed kind of gushing. Meanwhile, the new Secretary of State, who was just confirmed, Anthony Blinken, uh, Tony uh, is trying to, um, um, to have a more positive relationship with the media. So in his first full day in office, that was yesterday, had a little news conference, and he said, speaking of the media, that they are the cornerstone of our democracy. You keep the American people and the world informed by what we do here. That's key to our mission, he told reporters at Foggy Bottom. Uh, and he plans to resume daily press briefings, which were stopped under the Trump administration. I think that's great. It's nice that the new Secretary of State doesn't consider the press the enemy of the American people. But, you know, you don't get a medal for resuming daily press briefings. It was an aberration. It was unusual that a state, uh, this also had an impact on defense, and certainly at the White House, that President Trump chose to not have daily briefings. He wanted all, everything to emanate from him, not from his cabinet members. Uh, so it's just sort of a return to normal. I don't think it's you know grounds for a standing ovation, but I'm glad that it's happening because the State Department press corps, like the Pentagon press corps, uh, is staffed with very knowledgeable people, many of whom have covered that beat for years, are experts on diplomacy and or uh, foreign policy, military policy. Uh, and it's good that they get a chance to talk to whoever the top spokesman or top spokeswoman is, uh, just as Jen Psaki has now resumed the daily briefings at the White House and has been bringing out experts, Fauci, uh, other people, uh, Susan Rice, the new domestic policy chief, for the press to get at. Because, you know, it's great. I, I love the fact that Donald Trump talked to the press virtually every day, uh, right up until the end, that is. Um, but you can learn a lot from these briefings, and you can get into a level of policy specifics that you often can't with a president who you know, is not, can't be expected to know every single nuance of every single policy. Meanwhile, the top target of the media right now, absolutely hands down, all over uh, television, cable news, is Marjorie Taylor Greene. I talked about 
uh, the newly elected congresswoman from Georgia yesterday, how CNN had discovered uh, some Facebook posts that she had made over the last couple of years before uh, she ran for office, and how odious some of this was. I mean, there is no sugarcoating this. There's no, oh, this was misinterpreted. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, either liked or reposted on Facebook uh, approvingly uh, the idea that Nancy Pelosi committed treason and therefore should be executed. A bullet to the head was one of those. Uh, and also said that some uh, members of law enforcement or the FBI should be executed because they were part of the deep state. So Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, says he's going to go talk to her. And it just makes you wonder, uh, does McCarthy wary of crossing this new member of Congress who is a self-proclaimed adherent of QAnon. I mean, when Steve King, the veteran former congressman from Iowa, increasingly made racist statements or statements that seemed to most people to be racist, uh, he was stripped of a committee chairmanship, and yet Marjorie Hill Green was put on the education committee. So yesterday, last night actually, uh, in her Georgia district, uh, a crew from the local Channel 3 was escorted out of a town hall meeting that Congresswoman Green was holding by a sheriff's deputy. And by the way, it wasn't like this crew crashed the meeting. This was a publicly uh, advertised uh, town hall meeting. Uh, The media were invited. Channel 3, like other local news outlets, uh, got credentials to cover the meeting. But once these journalists and crews showed up, they were told they would not be allowed to ask any questions or speak to anybody else at the meeting, which I don't know how you can do that. Uh, so when the reporter for Channel 3 attempted to ask a question, she said, well, this is only for my constituents. I'm speaking to my constituents. I'm going to ask you to leave. And, and, and the, how, on what basis does law enforcement escort out a credentialed members of the media? That's nuts. But it gives you an idea of um, the relationship. Uh, AOC is getting in on this now. Uh, she says that uh, House Republicans are being steered by far-right QAnon conspiracy theorists and white supremacists. And she says Kevin McCarthy has lost control over his own conference. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez saying in the House Republican caucus, Kevin McCarthy answers to these QAnon members of Congress, not the other way around. Um, AOC goes on to say there are legitimate white supremacist sympathizers that sit at the heart and at the core of the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives. Um, And she's calling on McCarthy to discipline Marjorie Taylor Greene. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen based on the signals that he's sending, but uh, this woman, who a lot of people in the media couldn't believe, given the QAnon affiliation, uh, that she was elected to Congress. But look, if the people of that district in Georgia want to elect Marjorie Taylor Greene, they have the right to do so. She also has the right to decide who comes to her meetings, but if she's going to invite the media, I don't think you then toss somebody out for asking a question. And I would have hoped that, you know, her her defense on the, the Facebook post was sort of like, well, you know, uh, all my Facebook posts weren't, weren't written by me. I have a team. Not, I am horrified and shocked to see this and I completely disavow it. You would think a member of Congress would say that. All right, let's get down to business here, folks, with story number one. So after the test vote on impeachment in the Senate, procedural vote, yes, but basically Rand Paul, who now says impeachment is dead on arrival, by which he means conviction in the Senate, is dead on arrival. And he, of course, is right. 45 of the 50 Republican senators voted to toss out the impeachment case brought by the House 
on the grounds that it's unconstitutional. Now, I don't even want to get sidetracked on whether it is constitutional, it isn't constitutional, certainly the Senate has done it before, but that was a game changer because while it was obvious to everybody, journalists, politicos, operatives, even Joe Biden talked about it, that the Senate was not going to convict, that the Senate was never going to convict Donald Trump after he left office, just wasn't going to happen. The, this was like a, a, a smack to the forehead because now we know f- for certain, you know, yeah, you know, it's conceivable that maybe more than the five Republican defectors might, after a trial, vote uh, to convict private citizen Donald Trump. But so what? You're not even going to get close to the 17 Republican defectors you would you would need. Even Mitch McConnell voted to toss out the trial, despite the fact that. He was the one who stood up on the floor and said the president incited the riot of the Capitol and privately said, and his office never denied it, um, that the House, that, he, that Trump had committed an impeachable offense and the House had done the right thing. But McConnell knows he can't lead a charge without troops. And he doesn't have many troops here. He's got Mitt and Susan Collins and Murkowski and a couple others, and that's it. So the Senate Democrats are now having to shift strategy because obviously this thing is just going to be empty political theater. We all know what the ending will be. So according to the Washington Post, Senate Democrats are eyeing a rapid fire impeachment trial for former President Trump that could last as quickly as one week. The first impeachment trial, by the way, uh, lasted three weeks. So what they're saying is, you know, we don't really need to call witnesses because that'll just drag it out. We have, you know, all the videotape of the riot at the Capitol. We have the videotape of Trump giving the speech. We have Trump's tweets. I think that'll be enough. We could do this in a week. In fact, they could do it in a day. After all, the House did it in a day. Uh, So now they're saying, you know, uh, maybe we ought to do this quickly so that we can get back to the business of saving the country from COVID-19, letting the Biden administration... Uh, pursue other parts of its agenda. The idea of taking the Senate out of commission for several weeks was always crazy. I said this from the beginning. Why would you even want to have a conviction when the main purpose, at least in the public mind, of impeachment is to remove somebody from office? Well, the voters removed him from office. Donald Trump is down in Mar-a-Lago. And I said that, you know, McConnell delayed it for a couple weeks. And with each passing day, it's going to seem more ludicrous. Well, now it seems even more ludicrous because we know there are probably 45 firm votes against uh, conviction for President Trump. And you need 67 votes to convict, two-thirds majority. Uh, so now uh, the Democrats are rethinking and, they, you know, they're, they're kind of giving up on the notion that they could permanently bar Trump from running for office, which means he wouldn't be able to run in 2024, which I'm not so sure he's going to do anyway at the age of 78, but we'll see. Uh, so Tim Kaine, the uh, Hillary's vice presidential candidate, says he's going to file a censure resolution that would be an alternative to convicting Trump. Why? Because they can't convict Trump. And by the way, Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, is working with Kaine on this. So it has a bit of a bipartisan flavor. Uh, here's Kaine saying in an interview with The Post, we have to hold President Trump accountable. And then we also have to balance that with the public's number one demand, which is COVID relief. Uh, Kane said if Democratic leaders move forward with a trial, you know, let's get it over quickly. The Democrats are likely to rely on an extensive video record of the events of January 6th, but not call witnesses or present new evidence, you know, such as did Trump try to replace the acting attorney general with one of his loyalists? 
so they could pressure Georgia into reversing Biden's victory in that state. Here's another Democrat, Sheldon Whitehouse. A lot of us were witnesses to what took place. There's been enormous press coverage. If you don't know what happened that day, you really have been paying attention. So I think there is the prospect of lease of quite a rapid trial. Bernie Sanders um, says, I would hope we deal with that as quickly as possible to start addressing the needs of working families. White House goes on to say, hey, if we do a censure, it's not just, hey, you did wrong. It makes a factual finding under the 14th Amendment that would likely, yeah, the lawyers could argue this, put an obstacle in Trump's path if he were to run for office again. Uh, Susan Collins says the censure would be something that would, in her mind, would take place in lieu of the trial, not in addition to it. So I don't think the censure is going to happen. I think there will be a trial. I think it's going to last a few days, and that will be it, and we can all move on. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Uh, story number two. You know, the other day, the uh, death rate from coronavirus dipped. I think it was about 1,700. And I said, maybe, I hope this is not an outlier, but maybe, you know, the uh, surge coming after Christmas holidays has run its course, and maybe the number of cases now is going to go down. Well, the number of new cases has dropped, but the, the death toll, not so much. Yesterday, over 4,000 deaths in America. Uh, day before, I believe, over 4,000 or very close to 4,000 deaths in America. So this uh, wintertime surge is not over by any stretch of the imagination. Anthony Fauci, who is now the chief medical advisor to President Biden, uh, has been making uh, the television rounds now that the uh, shackles have been taking off his arms and legs. He was on MSNBC's Morning Joe Today. And one of the late-night comedy shows did a sort of a bit that now that Fauci is liberated, he's going on everything. And he was he was photoshopped into delivering the weather on the local news. He was uh, put into the cartoon. It was a cartoon drawing of Fauci on Peppa Pig, which if you have kids, you know Peppa Pig, the British comedy series about a pig family. So that was kind of funny. But what's not so funny is the state of the, uh, state of the vaccine rollout which I have been raging against because it has just been such a colossal mess in state after state, in county after county. There are not enough doses of of this vaccine, and it's just complete chaos and confusion for anybody, particularly older people who maybe aren't that Internet savvy, trying to make an appointment, even if you're in one of the priority groups, trying to make an appointment. You get bounced around from one website to another. You go to, I've gone to websites and it says, you know, click here. And you click and you wait for two hours and you get in. And the first thing it says is, well, there are no vaccines available. Well, why wait two hours? Why not tell you that up front? So there's been some walkbacks uh, in President Biden's shop. Uh, the Biden White House acknowledged yesterday that most Americans will need to wait months to get vaccinated. So Biden, wanting to deliver a little bit of good news, said uh, and when he took questions from reporters, I think any American who wants to get a vaccine shot, will be able to get it by the spring. Uh, that's not what Fauci says. That's not what the CDC says. Uh, for any American, I mean, where the doors are just thrown open to anybody who's over the age of 16 or 18, whatever the, the minimum age is. Um, maybe by the fall. Some say maybe the summer. I'm not really seeing it. So at the first coronavirus briefing, where they were socially distanced, and I think Fauci had joined by video conference, Andy Slavitt, he's one of the senior officials at the briefing, said the administration is working to increase the availability of vaccinations with incredible urgency and purpose. Great. But it will be months before everyone who wants a vaccine can get one. 
Look, they can't even get it to people in nursing homes, people over 75, and now under the new CDC guidance, people under 65 or those who have, you know, pre-existing conditions that makes them essentially vulnerable. Uh, yes, the Biden administration was able to strike a deal for an additional 100 million doses uh, from uh, Pfizer and Moderna, in addition to the 200 million already on the contract. But these companies need time to make these, and you got to make the syringes, and you got to ship them, and you got to have facilities um, that are able to administer it. So at this presser, uh, most of the stuff that was talked about had already been announced. So one step the administration is taking and can take without Congress providing any additional money, officials saying they're directing HHS to make use of a law to make it easier to enlist more doctors and nurses in the effort to vaccinate Americans. And they're going to encourage retired doctors and nurses to be able to administer these uh, coronavirus vaccine doses. Um, also, they kind of remember when Biden, I talked about this for, for days now, one million doses a day for the first hundred days was the Biden goal. And one reporter after another said, that seems too low. We're pretty much already there. Can't you go higher? And Biden said, well, I think we may be able to get to one and a half million doses a day, which would be 150 million, um, by the end of his first hundred days in office, which by the way, under the two dose regimen is only covers 75 million Americans. But Slavitt said, well, you know, uh, the president is pushing us to do one million a day as a floor, not a ceiling. They very much don't want to be locked into saying that 150 million is the goal because they fear that they may not exceed it. And that was the whole reason for the low goal, to make sure you could exceed it and say, well, we did that. Uh, Rochelle Walensky, she's the new head of the CDC. She said, yes, there's been some muzzling. In the past, science was not always leading the way. I want to make sure science is leading the way, that the voices and the subject matter experts within this agency are again heard. Uh, Walensky also said we need to recognize there were some mistakes made. There are places we can learn and do better. Now, that is seen as an effort to the CDC's poor handling of testing early in the pandemic. That was a complete and total botch. Uh, And also implied criticism of Robert Redfield, who was the Trump administration CDC, guy uh, failing to uh, aggressively push back on guidance about the benefit of masks, the benefit of testing, and all of that. Let's move now to story number three, and it has to do, I guess you could say, story number three. Donald Trump still banned from Twitter. It's like Francisco Franco, still dead. An old Saturday Night Live skit. So Politico has an interesting piece. I hadn't quite thought of it this way. And as you know, with YouTube now banning Trump, with Facebook having being in the appeal stage for banning Trump, and with Twitter permanently banning Trump, um, I really question whether or not that's the way for our social media giants to go now that he's a private citizen, because the fig leaf of, oh, he's going to incite another insurrection, I don't really see any evidence for that. But Politico has a piece that says that for President Biden, this has been a priceless gift. The blissful sound of former President Donald Trump's Twitter silence. Gone are the pre-dawn tirades, the all-caps declarations, the sleepy Joe mocking, the Fox News-driven agitations and the general incitements. Instead, says Politico, Biden debuted a flurry of executive orders without ever having to deal with what surely would have been rapid-fire antagonism from the man whose legacy he was dismantling. So naturally, they call some people up. Hey, what do you think about this? White House officials insist their communication strategy hasn't changed, simply because Trump is both gone and silent. Uh, Here's an official White House statement. 
The president spent two years ignoring Trump's distractions and staying focused on the message he wanted to deliver, and it paid off with a commanding win. Well, it is true that Trump, uh, that Biden very much tried to be, not be drawn into the rabbit holes of responding to every Trump tweet. Continuing with the statement to Politico, whether or not Trump slinks back into public view, ew, or opens up a parlor account isn't going to make a difference in how we communicate with the American people. Uh, but here is a blind quote from an outside Biden advisor, not having to deal with a deranged new tweet every hour, they feel blessed. Now, I don't think, you know, we've heard the last of Donald Trump, whether he's on Twitter or Facebook or not. There are many ways for him to communicate. I think he's just taking a break, lying low. Um, probably he understands as a creature of television that you can't have a comeback until you have a little bit of an absence. So it may be a few months, it may be one month, it may be next week, who knows? I mean, obviously, the president's uh, advisors and lawyers will be speaking on his behalf during the Senate impeachment trial. After that, after the inevitable acquittal, you know, how long does Trump wait before, uh, you know, wading back into political wars? We shall see. But it's certainly true with Biden issuing all these... um, executive orders, for example, and, and proclamations, for example, uh, canceling the Keystone Pipeline project, um, the COVID stuff, the environmental stuff, the mask mandate for federal workers and contractors. Uh, he doesn't have to contend with Trump calling him a loser or whatever. Kind of a little hard to call him a loser when he's the president of the United States and you're not. But nevertheless, uh, it is a, a, a brief interregnum, a moment of silence that I don't think is going to last that long. So if the Biden people are loving this, enjoy it while you can. All right, story number four. Uh, the whole GameStop thing has been fascinating. So as you probably have heard by now, a bunch of people on Reddit have decided to engage in day trading. There is nothing illegal about this, but they consult with each other on Reddit. And they have uh, picked certain stocks that they have driven up the price on by buying up the shares. BlackBerry, I never thought that stock would be hot again, up about 280% this year. Stock in the AMC movie theater change, up 840%. But the one that's captured all this attention is GameStop. GameStop is a video game retailer. It has stalls that are in all these malls. People aren't even going to malls because of COVID. And so um, I guess the figure is um, that these Reddit traders, a lot of them are just mom and pop investors, small brokers, or just young people. They have driven the cap, the market cap of GameStop from $2 billion to $24 billion in a matter of days. The shares have driven 1,700% since December. Just between Tuesday and Wednesday, the market cap went up $10 billion. Now, when that happens, some people make some money and people lose money. So you have these hedge funds, uh, these big Wall Street operators who uh, were betting on GameStop going down. It's called short selling and you buy options to buy it back at a lower price. They've gotten killed. They've lost a lot of money. Elon Musk on his Twitter feed was playing up this thing. So the uh, New York Times interviewed one of the Reddit guys, 16-year-old high school student from Wisconsin. Says he made $750 off GameStop stock. He said this felt like a vindication for himself and his fellow traders. A guy named Ben Pat says, it's a good opportunity to make money and stick it to the hedge funds. By buying GameStop, it's sort of like beating them at their own game. Um <laughs> uh, Forgive the pun. That's the quote. No one knows how this ends, said the New York Times. 
Uh, some analysts say the intense activity could eventually prompt a wider sell-off in the market. I mean, the market tanked yesterday. The Dow was down about 640 points. It bounced back to about half of that so far as I'm speaking to you. The S&P fell more than 2.5%. Um, but a lawyer at a securities firm says it's not illegal. It's just garnering enthusiasm. People go out and push the price up. Interesting. When I wrote my book about Wall Street and the media called Fortune Tellers, uh, there were a lot of professional players that played this game of trying to drive up the price and or drive down the price, and you can make money that way. But day trading was so prevalent that a lot of just ordinary citizens thought they could beat Wall Street pros at their game. And what happened is the bubble burst. I mean, all these internet stocks just went up to ri- ridiculously astronomical heights, and then they crashed and came down to earth, the whole market crashed. I'm not suggesting that will happen here. This seems like much more of a limited thing than, than the, the incredible number of people who would watch CNBC and then buy and sell stock based on what a bunch of TV analysts said. Um, now you have more sources of information, including Fox Business. But we'll have to see how this plays out. I do know Wall Street is very, very nervous. And I want to close with story number five. And I really was struck by this piece in The Atlantic by a writer named Amanda Mull. Now, you've read a hundred pieces. There have been thousands of pieces about the effect of COVID-19 on our social lives, our work lives, so many people working from home. And I want to make clear, if you're working, you've got a job and you work from home, you're lucky. You're lucky that you can do that. You go to the office once in a while. And, you know, the limitations on even seeing family uh, because of COVID restrictions, not going inside, seeing close friends of yours, how many people are just doing it on FaceTime or Zoom or whatever, and the impact that's had. But what this piece focuses on are the people in your broader, broader circle of what I would call acquaintances, the people that you would see at work where you would hang out in the break room or at the coffee maker or at the proverbial water cooler. And these are people you saw every single day when you went to the office every single day, and now you don't have, you're not really in touch with them. Or the people you'd see at the local store. Amanda Mull talks about, she used to go to sports bars and she knew a bunch of people that she'd watch, uh, you know, a big game. I didn't do that, but I certainly can relate to the rest of it. So let me read from this piece. Um, people I, full, I miss without fully realizing it. Pretty good friends, which is why I mostly done things that were no longer possible, such as trying new restaurants together. Coworkers I didn't know well, but chatted with in the communal kitchen. Workers at the local coffee or sandwich shop who could no longer dawdle to chat. The depth and intensity of these relationships varied greatly, but these people were all in some capacity my friends, and there was no substitute for them during the pandemic. Tools like Zoom and FaceTime, which are useful for maintaining closer relationships, couldn't recreate the ease of social serendipity, that's an interesting phrase, or bring back the activities that bound us together. Now, she goes on to say, understandably, much of the energy directed toward the problems of pandemic social life has been spent on keeping people tied to their families and closest friends. Of course, that's the most important. These other relationships, these more peripheral relationships, as she says, I'll call them, you know, acquaintances, have withered largely unremarked on after the places that hosted them closed. The pandemic has evaporated entire categories of friendship. Think about that for a moment. The pandemic has evaporated entire categories of friendship and by doing so, depleted the joys that make up a human life. Um, Amanda Mull goes on to say that um, there are people on the outer periphery of my life for whom the concept of keeping up makes little sense. But there are lots of friends and acquaintances, people I could theoretically hang out with outdoors or see on video chat, but with whom those tools just don't feel right. The perception largely seems to be mutual. I'm not turning down invites from these folks on Zoom or for walks in the park. 
Instead, our affection for each other is in a period of suspended animation. Uh, along, you know, along with indoor dining and international travel, sometimes we respond to each other on Instagram, friendly chats, you know, and she just goes on to say, when you strip out the humanity, there's nothing left but the transaction. In other words, it used to be the, you would talk, you would go pick up some food, you'd talk to the person at the restaurant. Now you have contact-free delivery, it's dropped at your door. Um, and she talks to a couple of experts and says the psychological effect of losing all but our closest ties can be profound. Peripheral, peripheral connections tether us to the world at large. Without them, people sink into the compounding sameness of closed networks. And just think about it for a minute in your own life. It's just true. I mean, whether you worked in an office, whether, I mean, it's certainly true for students uh, who are still doing the, the um, uh, remote learning kind of thing. It's certainly true for just, even if you're not working, even if you're a homemaker. I mean, you know, you make you make the shopping rounds and you talk to people. I mean, you still, we, I still talk to the, guy, the guys and the women at the grocery store when I go in. But, you know, we're all wearing masks, as, as somebody in this piece pointed out. When you're wearing masks, you can't see the person smiling. And it just brought me a little bit of sadness to think, I mean, eventually it will all come back, I guess. Maybe we'll realize how much we missed it. But there's just, when I think of people, maybe I see them uh, online uh, or on Facebook, and I say, oh, I haven't thought about that person in a really long time. I used to see them every day. I mean, the makeup people being in the television business, every single day I would go in the room and chat with them whether I was getting made up or not. Um, and mostly they have had to uh, work remotely or, or been laid off or, you know, are waiting for things to open up again. And that's going to be more months given the, the, the surge in the coronavirus. And it's just made me kind of wistful. Maybe you can relate to that as well. Thank you for listening. I enjoy sharing the insights. I uh, would love to see what you have to say about them. If you want to go to Apple iTunes and leave a comment, you can also subscribe on your Amazon device, at Google Podcasts, at Spotify, and Amazon Music. We'll see you all tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.